My guest today is Sam Seaton, who is the CEO of MoneyHub, the open finance platform for customer-centric organizations and a leading player in the field of financial data aggregation, intelligence, and payments. Before MoneyHub, she worked for global advisory firms and innovative financial forecasting businesses. Sam is passionate about the power of technology to help consumers achieve better financial outcomes and is a non-executive director at the Charities Aid Foundation Bank on the Digital Advisory Panel at Newbury Building Society and on the advisory board of The Big Exchange. She's a founding member of Open 51, the organisation that promotes the role of women developing open finance and the new data economy and is one of the 10 industry representatives in the steering group on the Money and Pension Services Pensions Dashboard Programme. Sam was named 2020 FinTech Woman of the Year at the Professional Advisor Awards. She's a keen horse rider and regular eventer, which is an equestrian challenge comprised of three disciplines, dressage, show jumping and cross country. In this episode, you'll hear all about open banking, open finance, and how what started as a regulatory initiative to give consumers more freedom and choice financially is becoming a hotbed of innovation. Perhaps most interestingly, you'll hear from somebody who is completely passionate about giving consumers what they need to discover what she calls the fields of financial wellness. And rather than me trying to do the subject justice, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Sam. Hi, Sam. Thank you very much indeed for uh, for joining me today and um, welcome to the show. Great to chat to you. Perhaps before we start getting into the, the general conversation, it'd be great to talk a little bit about you, if we may. I know that you started your career at Towers Perrin, which is now Willis Towers Watson, and you're now the CEO of Money Hub. And I'd be great if you could just sort of fill in the gaps, really, and give us a bit of your story and how you've ended up doing what you're doing. Yeah, well, it's it's been a journey and I feel I've got to the place that I, you know, how you have these meant to be, you know, and everyone laughs, but actually I really genuinely believe I'm, I'm where I'm meant to be. And the reason I say that is because for those of you that don't know me, I started obviously in Australia with a computer science degree. So I didn't actually start in financial services. So my early career started in actually telcos and then came to the UK, which is another story in itself, because I, I came with a horse in tow to compete in eventing. So Let's not go into that for now, but you know that that's how I ended up in the UK. Fell in love with the place, and uh, and obviously I've never returned to Australia. Much to many people's like, you know, what? Why? You know, so another story for another day. But just to bring you back, so so I actually ended up working for Towers Perrin just through some connections, actually, and and ended up in the Tillinghast, which is the institutional financial services part of Towers Perrin. And, you know, genuinely had some amazing mentors. I mean, one of which actually has now joined to help me on the business development of Money Hub, Vaughan Jenkins. He was one of my old bosses. Right. Okay. Great. And, and I've said to him, you know, a few times that when we first started, it was like it was a foreign language. So I, I genuinely would attend meetings, not say a word, and come out and think, oh, my God, you know, I need to understand. Because the whole financial services lingo it is, is genuinely this different world you walk into. So I soon got my head around that and found it fascinating. And I've never stopped finding it fascinating, actually. So I loved my time at Towers Perrin, kind of say I grew up there. And the one thing that stood out to me, though, in that time, because of building products with institutions that they then took to market, the one thing that stood out to me is that I really felt the consumer had no hope. And I don't mean that because the consumer isn't bright doesn't care about their money because none of that is true. It's just that the way we produce products and take them to market, I feel is flawed. Mm-hmm. Even the advisors that get trained on these products, to be fair to those advisors, I know, I know for a fact a lot of them didn't really understand the products. Mm-hmm. And then they've got to convey to the consumers about these products. So you can see where that's going to end up, which is that consumers buy products. And I'm Without a shadow of a doubt, a lot of those products are really not understood by them. Right. And that never really sat well with me because I thought, well, on what planet do you sell people things, you know, for their, you know, with hard-earned money that they've earned, that they rely on for the future financial wealth and health of their families, you know, in the future, where they don't actually know what they've got. Mm. And so that that was a circle that never sat well with me. And then as a result, I got the opportunity to MBO eValue 
from when Towers Pair merged with Watson Wyatt. And so that was a, um, a, a point when we were able to take that and lift it from an institutional focus to a retail focus. Right. And, you know, one of the things that that providing kind of what I call more robust forecasts, but taking into account risk and return was an important kind of aspect of trying to help people understand money because it's all about risk and return, right? Mm-hmm. And filling out those questionnaires, do you remember, you know, the, the fact find and the questionnaires, that we, and it's still one of the questions that sticks in my head and it's like fundamentally dress it up however you like, but, you know, do you want to lose any money? Yeah, I was going to say, yes, not really, no. <laughs> I'm like, no, and yet you, you probably know, Neil, as well as I do, the minute you say no, we end up in a cautious bucket. Yeah, get a nice cash account at uh, 0.5, yeah. 100% sure, you know, that is quite mm. what I meant. But, you know, anyway, so, so you know, I wanted to really make a difference there, ran the E-Value for five years and really enjoyed that, but then got the opportunity to go a step closer, in effect, to the consumer with Money Hub. And so, therefore, really feel I've kind of made it in a bit of a journey mm-hmm. to a place that I'm really enjoying, which is, enabling the consumer to work with enterprises in a way that actually, to be honest, has not been possible to do. Yeah. And let's just platform on straight into that because I'd love to get into what Money Hub's all about. And when we first met, you presented a networking event that we were both talking at and uh, you presented a wonderful graphic, which I was thinking, I wonder if I've got that anywhere. And actually it's it's behind you. So um, in good old panto form, we're near Christmas. So uh, it's behind you. So I mean, maybe using the infographic, but uh, I'm sure it's imprinted in your brain anyway. I mean, just tell us a bit about Money Hub, what, what you do and, you know, what, why does it exist? I think fundamentally, I would like to think the reason we are different to a lot of other companies in this space is because of this map. I, I know it sounds odd, but we are truly consumer-centric, even though we are B2B. It, the DNA of our business is about the consumer. And the reason for that is because, I mean, I take, um, so this designer who designed this amazing map, spent some time with a chartered financial planner. She had never worked in financial services before. And this is what pops out. And I adore it because, mm. I mean, obviously you can see her interest in Lord of the Rings and that, that even, <laughs> actually makes it even more intriguing for me. But, but I guess what really I love about it is if you look at the map towards the fields of financial wellness, I think Everyone wants to get to those fields of financial wealth. Everyone wants to get to financial stability where money enables you to do what you want to do. It's, it's not a blocker. And obviously, for everyone, that will be a different place. And there's nothing wrong or right about that. So I have no view on, you know, you, you may want to be a multimillionaire and you, you may actually just want to pay your house off and, and actually have enough money to go cycling with your mates. And there's all those extremes. But whatever it is, Money's an enabler. It's not what actually matters. Mm. And the one thing I love about this map is that I think all of us end up on this journey. But unfortunately, it's not, you don't just stay on one bit and keep going round. You know, as, as you'll know, Neil, things in life happen, whether it's, I mean, look at COVID, illness, divorce, you know, things that come out of what I call left field. So you're traveling along in a quite a good way and something comes out of left field and suddenly you're back in the pits of despair. Mm. And, and, and genuinely not through your incompetence, not because you're poor with money, not, none of those reasons. It's just life. Mm. So this kind of map that kind of you know goes up and down and yeah. around just to me represents life, life with your money and life, you know, the journey that you go on. Yeah, and I mean, at the heart of it, it's hovering neatly above your head. It's a very, very clear and ambitious purpose statement. And, you know, one of the things that's coming out of a lot of the conversations we're having with people on this show is the absolute criticality of having clarity of purpose as an organization. And it drives everything that you do. Ultimately, it leads to a consistent customer experience, whoever your customers might be. I mean, how did you come up with that purpose statement? And how visible is it in the firm in terms of driving the decisions that you take and the things that you do day to day? So for us, it's, it was, I mean, it sounds awful, but it wasn't hard, you know, because, you know, when you think about money, and money is an enabler, you know, something like that purpose to me doesn't feel that difficult. I guess the only bit that's a bit unique about it is the community aspect. I mean, we, it's, you know, it's very easy to think about a consumer or a business, but I think actually we've got to think a bit broader than that. So within businesses and, with, and within consumers, the community aspect is quite important, I think, now. And that, I think, comes through with, you know, the, the work that's been done on tribes and things like that. I think 
you ignore that at your peril. So we yeah. want to kind of bring all of that together. So but you can't have a statement like that and then not make that really ingrained in what you do. Otherwise, you don't have the right people that join the business. So although you need diversity of thought and you genuinely do need different people from all different places in the world, demographics, I still think you can't build a really strong business if you aren't genuinely bought into what it's trying to do. So I, I think that's sometimes where people potentially get diversity a bit mixed up, you know. Mm -hmm. So it, it would be no point us employing someone that just honestly all they think about is, is making a quick buck. Mm -hmm. I mean, it might be a diversity of thought, but that's, it's just not going to work. So, so we have to bring those values all the way through. And I mean, for some of your listeners, it might be worth going onto our careers page, you know, on our website, because you can see the map and, and we kind of explain the values for that which is, you know, collaborative, nurturing and agile. I mean, they're our three values and they're core to what we do as a business. And we believe those three values for us is what's going to help us achieve that purpose. Yeah. And it's not just clients, is it? It's your, it's a, it's. No, no, completely. I, I it, it drives everything. Yeah, exactly. And that's that was my point. I mean, I think it's it's almost in great organizations, it's kind of baked into the DNA of the business. And I know that's kind of like sounds like a, a typical consultant statement, but where it's true, you kind of feel it when you go into somewhere or you're talking to somebody because everything that they're espousing is is yeah. is natural and it just comes out. And it makes it easy for you to pick it up. So for example, you know, we will pick each other up on it. You know, it's like, and sometimes you can do it as a bit of a joke, but actually it's good. It's like, well, that wasn't very nurturing me, was it? Yeah. <laughs> right, know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, like, you know that, that felt like, you know, you were being, you know, and sometimes it's funny, but it does make it easy to kind of keep it alive, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, so anyway, so it's very important to us as a business not to, to live it, eat your own lunch. Otherwise, I just, I, I think it's a hollow statement and it doesn't matter what statement you come up with, it won't matter. No, 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 agreed. And I mean, there, there's people listening to this across a whole range of sectors. Could you just briefly explain what open banking and open finance are for people? Because I think the purpose is clear, but how you do that, I think a lot of people will be a bit lost as to what it means. So I think the, the, the real tie-in, open banking and open finance, is that open banking, the legislation around putting customers in control of their money, and I really think GDPR sits behind that as well. So we, we actually kicked this off really with GDPR. Right. Stronger customer control of data. Now you, you have open banking, which is legislation. It's the, it's the PSD2, so the Payment Services Directive version 2. That is the legislation that is, is meant that open banking means that any company can use a company like Money Hub to enable their customers to share with some or all of their banking data with them in order to provide a better service or, or comparisons of products or just help them on the journey of money. And the reason it's so powerful, this open banking initiative, is that I really believe it A, places the consumer in control of their data at a, at a level now that is a, a notch up. So if I could perhaps give an example, direct debits mm. we're all very familiar with. Yep. And I imagine we all feel we're in control. You know, we've got direct debit mandates. We feel they've got guarantees and all that. It's very clear. But a lot of people are surprised to know that, you know, I go and sign a direct debit mandate with some magazine subscription, you know, for example, and unbeknownst whether it's digital or not, it doesn't really matter. But whether I realise it or not, you know, actually I have opened up my account to that company and although it will be theft, they can empty my bank account. Right. So yeah. In that, you know, there is no way I can stop them emptying my bank account. They might have only meant to take three quid a week from it, but I actually can't stop them emptying the account. And although I will get the money back and all the rest, you know, in some process, I may not get it back in time to pay my mortgage. I may, you know, and I guess what I'm trying to say is we all feel very comfortable with that mode. Mm. And yet open banking means actually with payment initiation, for example, and the legislation around that. I can now give a, a company the ability to take £2.32 from my account. Right. Up to a maximum of £5, for example, because maybe I say you need to take two payments for a magazine or something or whatever on one occasion. But the minute you want to take more than that, you have to get my approval. So you cannot empty my bank account anymore. Right. And I just think people don't realise the power of open banking. And I've just given one tiny example yeah. to try and bring it to life a little bit. 
that there's a yeah. big change happening. And then I would say, obviously, Money Hub is all about open finance. So open banking is one key element of that. Your current accounts and credit cards, I mean, being able to bring all them together in a place to help you, to help the enterprise and so forth is great. But for the world that I come from, which is the wealth world, you've got to look holistically. So in order to start to make inroads in terms of helping me with my money more holistically into the fields of the financial wellness, I need to know your mortgage. I need to know your, you know, your property. That could be a big part of what you're relying on in the future. Your pensions. We need to bring all of that together under one roof. And that's really fundamentally what started Money Hub, that, that initiative. Okay. And obviously for us, it's not just about open banking. No. Okay. So, I mean, at the heart of all of that then, I mean, it sounds like a really obvious statement, but just to be clear, it's data. Yeah. So it, it, you know, it's a data business. And it's the intelligent use of data and insights, um, you know, about yeah, so, what yeah. you do. So once you've got that, you know, once you've got the data, it's, it's like oil, isn't it? It's great. Yeah. So, but it's not very usable, is it? And no. I would say that actually that's something that as an industry in financial services, uh, going back to my days at Towers and a, and a With Profits actually that I, I was working with, and I just happened to ask the question about how many policies we were actually talking about here in terms of the, the With Profits uh, product that we were working with, and he had no idea. Like he knew yeah. how much money was in the With Profits. Yeah, 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 but didn't know how many people, yeah, no. So, you know, going back to that whole, you know, so, so yeah, so it's really about enabling enterprises to, to actually work with people, isn't it? Yeah. Not policies or products, it's, it's, it's actually enabling that. So I, th- I think that's really important. Stop over aggregating. Peter LeBeau, who we both know, who um, we were speaking at his network, and um, he always used to tell a joke about actuaries and he said well how many sheep are in that field and the actuary says a thousand and seven and he says how do you know that he said well there's seven there and there's about a thousand over there so it's a kind of you know the, the way the way an actuary thinks about things sorry actuaries listening i apologize okay so it's intelligent use jason and just sort of picking up on that and your you know your point around something you, you talked about earlier for example attitude to risk one of the things i get really frustrated about is where if I've given a piece of data about me and I've given permission to use it, it would be quite nice if companies actually did use it intelligently rather than A, ask me for it again or B, use it in a really stupid way. And, you know, we we chatted there about attitude to risk, for example. And and so, you know, if if I've given, for example, a platform, if I'm worrying about my wealth or my, you know, managing my finances, my money, the data that sits behind that, there should be a fairly long history of my attitude to risk and my reactions to things and how I move things. And surely an organization that's sophisticated could use that intelligently to kind of decide, you know, make some recommendations to me, for example, or help me with things rather than just kind of ask a bland statement like, you know, what's your attitude to risk? Well, not very much. Well, in which case, um, well, put it in the cash fund then and and that sort of stuff. I mean, uh, presumably you were on a bit of a quest around that as well. Yeah, so that's an opportunity and a problem, actually. So it's an opportunity for companies that are more forward-thinking. And, you know, I get questioned a lot about what we're doing. You know, surely the banks will just do this automatically. You know, this is... But I kind of say, well, the banks have been able to do this automatically for, I don't know, the last 50 years, I think. Yeah. And for whatever reason, what isn't in their DNA is that comfort about working with me as as an individual, that there is a, a block or something. And so really the... The amazing opportunity we've got here in financial services, if we can get our heads around it, and, and some are, is to do exactly as you've just saying, is to not be fearful. You know, once the consumer's given you consent, Accenture have even done lots of reports and they've found that, you know, 80% of consumers would give up more data in return for a value exchange. And I, and mm-hmm. I really believe that I see it on the Money Hub platform. You know, for example, I just a really simple one, but your loan-to-value ratio nudge. I mean, it's really simple. In fact, it's not machine learning algorithms. It is basic maths, right? And we can all do it once you know the, you know, the, the actual formula. You, every one of us could do it on a calculator. Mm-hmm. None of us are tracking our loan-to-value ratio. No. I mean, who? I mean, once again, it's not something you do every day in your life. It's, it doesn't feel important, and yet, for a lot of youngsters that get on the property ladder as they go through the first ten years of their mortgage. You know, there's some big differences that they go through in the LTV from, you know, 95% to 90% down to 85%. And that makes such a difference if they can actually be on the right product at the right time. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if the people that are providing the products did that for them? Mm. But unfortunately, Mm. they're not. 
And that's the product, you know, silo bit, isn't it, that we've got. Yeah. But the real benefit of what we're doing here is that actually just take that LTV ratio. So I say to my customers, you share that your, your, you know, your loan and property data with me and I'll track that and I'll tell you when you need to get looking at mortgages or actually I'll tell you when I can offer you a better mortgage <laughs> yeah. because I've got that available. So let's do this exchange. And that's, we're starting to see that. Right. But I think my worry is for financial services is that where we won't be quick enough and it's the retail sector which will, will actually be able to nail this. So that's why I'm so, I try and encourage, you know, all the financial services to move and move fast because we're not the only ones that are going to have access to an LTV ratio nudge, for example. I mean, mm. Sainsbury's or, or uh, you know, dare I say it, Amazon at some point could equally have that being tracked permanently in the background. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of organizations are talking about I mean, what, what I think you're talking about there. And if I could use a very bold term is sort of behavioral economics almost is actually sort of nudging people to say there's a significant benefit here if you take the following action or at least just put it out there and see what's available because either you've crossed the threshold or indeed you might not even be quite as not open, but quite as in your face as that. You might just say to somebody, look, you know, now might be a good time to to think about remortgaging because your financial position's improved. And it's just those little nudges and things. I mean, you're right. That, that is how a lot of very sophisticated retailers operate their marketing programs. They have done for years, haven't they? So Yeah, they have. And and that, so and, and also the the thing that I find a bit odd is that is that you, you I talk about, you know, I use the LTV nudge because it's just so simple and, and I actually think everyone gets it. It's very easy. But the interesting bit is that I still get from, you know, for example, from a pension company, well, you know, but, you know that's nothing to do with us. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, but have you thought about the fact that if, if you can get the 30-year-old, you know, if you can nudge them when their LTV is dropped through a thing and save them 25 quid a month in their mortgage. Which could go in their pension, yeah, them, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can say, how about we go house and put that in the pension? You've got to think out of the box here. You know, mm. that's good for the customer. It's good for you for assets under management. You know, you just got another £25 mm-hmm. a month, you know, into your assets under management. Yep. And, and suddenly you see the penny dropping, don't you think, oh. And this is what I mean about no longer being siloed in terms of product. So this idea about aggregating financial data is not just powerful for the consumer, but I think companies have to think more about, let's think holistically, genuinely, yep. and, and not just what I do, you know, for my customers, but how can I help them do that better so then I help them do what I do with them better. Yeah. So, I mean, your customers presumably are predominantly institutions that are facing off to customers, end customers, right? So, because you're a technology provider and a platform provider behind the scenes in in essence. And so, do you leave the client experience or the customer experience design to them and then you kind of take orders as to what you, you want or do you help them with that? Do you provide suggestions? I'd be really interested in how that interplay works because I'd imagine you and your guys are full of great ideas but sometimes must get a bit frustrated at the front end when it may not be um, implemented in quite the way that you thought it would be. Well, it's, 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 it's really interesting. So we're very lucky because we have our consumer app. So, you know, because we have the D2C app, which we treat it as one of our clients. Right. So, Money Hub, you know, direct to consumer is one of our clients that we yeah. look up, just like all of our enterprises. But the reason we've got it is because it is so powerful to, for example, um, your payday nudge. You know, I, I was really worried that people would see it as being condescending mm. because, you know, you know you've been paid, right? I mean, you know, and now I'm telling you you've been paid. It's like, oh, like, you know. And so some of these things, you know, we obviously test, we have a, a way we do it, but but just fundamentally having that group, if you like, to be able to put a payday nudge into and actually seeing the response is really the acid test when it comes to being able to, to test these things out. And so we've kept that consumer, you know, D to C, and we try and use it. We call it our Formula One car. Mm. So, you know, we just... It's a prototype, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, and, we, and, and because that the group that, that is attracted to that world, if you like, actually they're quite a sticky customer base because they, yeah. they found it for, for a reason. So they want it for a reason. They've either done their research, but they're also quite vocal. So if they don't like something, they'll tell us. And they don't tend to leave as a result of that, but, you know, um, genuinely. So we've been really fortunate to have, have that group. So we, we don't hesitate to use that group. And also some of that's to some of the benefit of the enterprises, whereby with the enterprises, they're a bit more wary, aren't they, sometimes, you know, of, of being able to, um, 
take those steps. And so we say to them, well, should we just try it with our D2C? Because, you know, if this is a nudge you're worried about, should we just try it and invite a few people to see if they want, you know, to, to test that out? Right. Like, oh, that's great. So we try it over here and then we feed back and say, well, actually, you know, 400 people, only two of them got upset. So they're like, oh, actually, well, that, that's reassuring. Let's do it. Right. So sometimes we, we can, you know, we can use it to that effect. So you have got to be willing to try things. I'd like our enterprises to be a bit more create their own group, you know, but that will take a bit of time and, and also a mindset shift. But at, at the moment, I guess we're helping them almost on that journey, you know, of using a, a subset of your customers to help inform you. And that's something that um, is probably worth mentioning, you know, going back to the community, talking about eating our own lunch. When we designed the categorization engine on Money Hub, we actually allow consumers, the actual consumers themselves, to recategorize and, and, and re, reassign things to help the machine learning algorithm. And, and that's like Waze. You know, I, I don't know if you know about Waze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's using the community again. And, right. And that's unique again about how so, – so just going back to everything you do, I think you do have to do it in the way, you know, you mean. You know, yeah. You know, so, for example, we would never occur to us to outsource transactions of categories to India to be categorized to make our machine learning algorithm better because it's not the way we think. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's just, yeah. So it's important. So just going back to your question about, so that's one way that we have, we, we do things with the um, testing. The other way is actually we do obviously the, the more traditional ways in terms of feedback, user testing, um, mm-hmm. which we rent, we rent, you know, we rent people to take through prototypes in vision, all of that that type of thing. Yeah. But but going back to your point about the the enterprises and how sometimes they can be frustrating because, you know, they get a bit stuck. Most of the enterprises are quite receptive to all of that, that feedback. They're perhaps just not as quick to be able to enable it. But the other thing that's a bit interesting is that the, the front ends that are being built are normally by the fintechs of the world. Right. And actually, they're amazing about what they do. Yeah, right. So actually, we've kind of got a split camp. You've got the white label lot, which want to get to market quickly and are leveraging what we're doing. And then you've got the fintech space. Where you can learn as well, yeah. I watch what they do and I'm like, whoa, it's amazing. (laughs) In fact, some of our clients, I say, go download, you know, this app and have a look at how they've done this because, you know, you you could take a leaf out of that. Mm. Yeah, well, that's classic design thinking, isn't it? I mean, you know, we spend a lot of time when we're doing design thinking workshops with people starting off, you know, you can call them mood boards, whatever it is, but something around trying to give inspiration and, and exactly as you say, you know, if you can find people that are in a different space but doing solving the same problem but doing it in a different way is um is a is a great way of learning, isn't it? So very interesting. Thank you. And within all of that, I mean, do you use traditional techniques like customer journey mapping and those kind of things, or have you kind of moved beyond that because you can very quickly configure something with the technology and then actually make it real rather than necessarily having to put it on a wall first or no, so we still do have to use journey mapping, wireframes, we, especially for new features. So mm. we can refine with the existing world, but if we bring something quite new, like the open banking-enabled retirement modeler, I mean, it's quite a different thing. But being able to have a retirement modeler that feeds off your current spending and current accounts, so it gives you a picture of where you are at now, yeah. and then forecast forward based on what you spend your money on, what that's likely to look like in the future, we definitely had to do journey mapping and what I would call the more traditional, you know, kind of, you know, kind of come up with um, the, the personas and, you know, I mean, what I would call is a very, I shouldn't use the word traditional, that's probably the wrong word. <laughs> well, tried and tested, definitely. I mean, it's, uh, but yeah, it, it, it does work. Yeah, it's putting yeah. yourself in your customer's shoes, absolutely. But it sounds yeah. like you can do your wireframes pretty well, pretty quickly by the sound of it. So. Yeah, so we still have to do that, but we probably have the advantage that once it goes live, which is where I think everyone genuinely falls down a bit Mm. people see things as a project don't they and that's something i'd love everyone to um, well i say it to everyone technology now and these things there is no project no interesting right i mean so you launch for example an open banking retirement modeler you know every month it needs refinement changing tweaking because actually it's it's got that's the only way it will a stay relevant and b in the next you know i mean you look at online shopping if we, if we just launched online shopping in 2002 and stayed there, none of us would be using it, right? I mean, it just wouldn't have worked. But it fast, you know, which is, we're talking about the demise of the retail high street and some of these, but, you know, by 2006, 7, 8, that online shopping had really got 
mm. around and it had become a lot easier, slicker, better. So I think it's like anything now, you can't look at technology as projects. No, very interesting point. And on the point of technology, I mean, obviously your proposition is a technology-based proposition at the end of the day. You're, you're enabling that. I mean, does that mean that your end customers are only going, ever going to be tech-savvy customers? Oh, I love this one because <laughs> well, well, because how can you achieve financial wellness if you're only going to to target people that can use an app? I mean, mm. ruled out a significant chunk of people, right? Which is not right. So, so no, no, no. So I am. I'm. So my take my mum. She is never going to use Money Hub as an app. I mean, it's not going to happen. I could do the training for the next three years, and she yeah, yeah. still won't do it or, or be able to do it. So we have a um, part of our platform is Money Hub Connect. Okay. And for me, so don't get me wrong, all that we've talked about, brilliant for people that love apps and, you know, want to work in the way we want to do. But there's, there's two things that I think are going to be important going forward. One, Money Hub Connect, which is where I can, I can help my mum in terms of the technology run her money for her. So she can give me, it doesn't have to be power of attorney or anything like that, but what she can say to me is, could you set me up and the alerts that I get or the rules of engagement can you actually you know can you ring me when anything goes wrong so in effect I can be a little bit like a bank manager so right okay you set it up so that you know if for example there's an unusual spending pattern happening money hub can flag that to me and said it's unusual and these are the reasons it's unusual and I I can just check in with mum and say mum you know, you're spending twice as much as you normally do on all sorts of stuff. Actually, you, I have no problem with that, but are you okay about that? And if she says, oh, I haven't used that account, you know, for months, it's like, well, maybe we should have a look into that, right? And, and I can do that for her, right? You know, I can say, well, right. okay. so what I want to do is with Money Hub Connect, I want us to be able, and that's still with children as well. I think, you know, some children need help, traveling, all sorts of things. Well, when they used to travel, but, you know, <laughs> so I really want to make it that actually you can when you kind of put your hand up and go, you know, I need help, but I, I can't run this technology stuff. But I, I obviously think it's beneficial. Actually, you can interact with someone in a way where they don't have to be the primary holder of the, you know, of the technology part. Now, we right. have the holder of the money in the accounts. And so, yes, yeah, so I, I, I want that to be part. Obviously, Money Hub Connect started life in terms of the advisor-consumer relationship where the consumer would share with the advisor all the accounts and at, and at what level they would want the advisor to see. So you can see all my investments and everything. My credit card, you can just see the balance at the end of each month, but you're not seeing what I actually spend on my credit card. You know, I don't mind you having the balance, but you know. Yeah. So because of that, I thought, well, we can take that much broader, can't we? Mm. And that means we make inroads to what I would call the vulnerable customer base. Yeah. The other one that I think is really important is three years ago now, it's, you know, it's like 2016, Dave, our CTO, went, did on, was on stage at Finnovate, Europe and and he showed how he was going out for an, a night and he asked Alexa how much of a bender could he have tonight you know and Alexa came back and said well you've still got your mortgage to pay and that would mean you've got £12.36 to spend on beer tonight you know and and he's like right great you know not many beers then right but I think we've got to get with the program that the UX and the UI mode we're in is going to go mm. and we're going to interact with with all of this stuff in a terms of we'll set it up and then it's going to run in the background and we're going to interact with it in a way that suits us on the fly conveniently. And I do think that will be in, in different ways to what we're seeing at the moment. And I think that change will happen quicker than we think. Mm. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I, yeah, and it's this constant balance, isn't it? Is Generationally, as it progresses, the question is is for the for the people that do get left behind within that, whether there are still things. And I, 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 I didn't know about the almost the guardianship structure that you could put in place where you can actually have somebody else. I mean, I suppose it wouldn't necessarily be a particularly profitable model, but you could even imagine an organization with a branch that you could go in where someone could go in there and someone in the branch could access the money hub capability to help them do stuff. I mean, that that, that would be a natural manifestation of that potentially. Yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. And then the other thing is, even just, for example, the level. So for example, you can say that actually, you know, it sounds awful, but you know, dementia and Alzheimer's is such a big issue but actually you can see that happening through people's spending patterns. It's been proven time and time again. So it could be that you can say, right. well, look, if you get into this spending pattern, do you actually want us to take another level of you know, control so that we make sure, you know, for example, one of my friend's mothers signs up to charities every day. 
by the end of right. each month, she'll have, have 30 new direct debits in place for 30 right. new charities. And, and so my friend then undoes them all. And then she's now got a rule in place with the bank, actually, you know, no more than eight. So when she tries to put the ninth on, they just, they just say, oh, you've already, you've already got your eight. Right. And so I think some of those rules, just, just to make it safer, better, Thanks, I, mean, yeah. Yeah, I really don't believe technology is doing the right thing if we're going to leave, you know, the younger audience that wants to move fast and furious mm. but also an older audience that wants to move at a, in a way that, you know, they're used to, used to operating. I, mm. I'm a really big believer of following the consumer, but that isn't one consumer. No, no, I get it. Interesting, thank you. And we, we touched there on, obviously, the advance of, digital and the adoption of that and how quickly it might happen. I mean, we've seen a lot of our clients across different industries kind of struggle a little bit in some cases with the sudden demand to kind of complete wholesale digital transformation they've been struggling with for years and all of a sudden COVID's come along and a lot of people that might have spent time pushing back previously said, right, give it to me now, I need it because I can't run my call center um, you know, or my, uh, any other part of my business without it. So, it feels like in some ways COVID's unlocked a lot of potential that's held back digital, be it, you know, in some cases it's been quite a, uh, a choke-off point in the, in the company. I mean, what have you seen this year? I mean, what's it been like for you and your team in terms of the impact of COVID and the acceleration and how you've dealt with that? I mean, it's been a benefit, I think, to any technology business. I mean, you've only got to look at Zoom. You know, it, it, mm. It's just a benefit, right? So, But the real power of it to me is the shift for the point that you just made, in the businesses for years, I have seen great people trying very hard to make inroads and they just haven't been able to either get the business case to stack up or, or they haven't been able to get all the dots joined up. And they've found that incredibly frustrating. What's lovely for me is that they've actually had a far easier run of it now. And I think that that's been the biggest shift for me. So for example, you know, it's I was in a call the other day where they got their, the whole team, you know, genuinely want to use the Money Hub platform for their proposition to good purpose, right? So that, and, and, you know, I would, I would say, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's not even a, a young team, but it's an energised team that get technology and where it's heading. But the sign-off had to come obviously right at the very top. You know, they, they're about to embark on spending quite a bit of money on a direction of travel. So uh, they got their, their very senior person to come and attend the meeting. And, and he said to me, he said, I'm not sure people are going to do this. And I, and I said to him, I said, well, no, and you, you're right, some people won't. And I said, but, you know, do you mind me asking, do you bank online? And he said, no. And I said, no. And I said, you know, I'm not trying to be difficult, but you probably never will. And I said, so you're never going to use this type of technology that's, that's coming in. Mm-hmm. And I said, which is fine. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I said, you're kind of in the 2% club now. Because 98% of people out there are, ta- are flocking to this like, a, like a, you know, a duck to water. And I said, so my challenge to you is, do you listen to the team, you know, that want to do this and enable it? Or do you kind of stick with your concern and kind of, you know, mm. you know wait, you know, in effect, a couple more years to see what happens? And I said, that, that's almost your dilemma. And I said, but it's going to be difficult for you you personally, when you don't bank online, because if you don't bank online because you don't trust it, you are certainly not going to see the benefit of open finance. I said, I said that's just a million years from where you mm. are. And the whole meeting, you know, was like silent. <laughs> and because uh, you know, it was like, oh my god, I can't believe what she's done. I'm sure they were thinking. But the thing is, I had to kind of have that conversation with him because mm. I don't know that he was ever going to completely understand what his team was wanting to do. No. So, so anyway, so we had that and it went completely silent for a bit. And, you know, what was brilliant about that was he said to me, he said, yeah, you're right, Sam. He said, I am never going to get this and I'm never going to use it. But I think you're absolutely right. Everyone else is. And we need to service everyone else. You're not servicing me. Mm-hmm. And there was just this collective, oh. <laughs> went, right? So, but I just wonder, you know, a year ago, would he have been mm-hmm. quite as Confident, I guess, is the word I'd use to let that team pre-COVID. I don't mm. think so. No, it's a really great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think we see a lot of that. It's just real kind of inflection points that people have gone through and realised and reflected themselves almost 
that's a great example of my own position in this business in terms of what's my role here. You know, is it to nurture people that understand this better or, or am I supposed to cast my own judgment over something, which I think a lot of people are in a different mode of operation now as a result. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Really interesting. And thinking of, I mean, that's, that's one big driver and, and touching on right at the very beginning of the conversation when you were talking about the fact that effectively your business was almost born off of regulatory change around open banking and, and trying to give people freer access uh, and choices around banking. I mean, regulation has been instrumental in driving this part of the sector, from my perspective. You may disagree, but it's, it's where it's come from. And, you know, 2 million customers or so now, I think, estimated to be using it in some form. I mean, do you think it's going to be more organic going forward and, and a gradual take up, or do you see? sort of regulatory shifts driving kind of step changes? I mean, I know, for example, you guys, you've just got your PIS permissions and your AIS permissions. I mean, how does regulation play a role in the growth of this sector going forward, do you think? I think you're right. Regulation's key. I mean, we wouldn't be where we are without the regulation. No shadow of a doubt. But I think what this has done a little bit is that I think there is an acceptance that this is the direction of travel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm on the steer code for not just the pensions um, dashboard, but also for the OSNI, so Open Savings and Investment Initiative. And, and obviously, you know, the government's smart beta um, program, smart data, and also the FCA's consultation around open finance and actually right now are variable recurring payments. So underneath the scenes, there is an awful lot happening, which basically what I would say to you, to everyone that's listening, the legislation isn't stopping. So you know, this enablement and empowerment of the consumer and their financial data is moving at speed and will not stop. Mm. So you either get with that mode or or you drag your feet and wait until it happens. But either way, it's, it's, you know, it's it's a kind of, it's it's, to me already done. It's just a process we're going through. So I think that is good. But I guess the the other thing is, is that I, I, I get really annoyed. I mean, really annoyed when people say to me, yeah, but open banking, it's, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a cost, isn't it? The banks have spent millions on it. Then, you know, it's never going to transform the industry. And I just find that so frustrating. It's like, well, I mean, I, I think back to when, you know, well, the analogy I use is whoever tried to sell the first mobile phone, right, mm-hmm. for example. And, you know, I can imagine even me sitting there thinking, so I have a phone on my desk, I have a phone at home, and the very place that I might need a mobile phone is in the middle of a, of a field where you don't have reception, you've just told me. I, I'm like, oh, so I don't, I don't see this mobile phone being particularly useful, right? And, and I think that's, I think, where we get a bit out of the moment. We can't see the wood for the trees. And I, I like to be more positive and say it's like electricity. You know, we've just got rid of the candles and we've put that infrastructure in place now around from, from GDPR and open banking and onto open finance that legislation has put the electricity grid in place. Right. So now, you know, let's watch the toasters, the kettles, the hot bars, let's lock the, the electric train sets. I mean, there is a cascade of incredible value exchange products and services coming. So either you get with that on that journey or, or you don't. Mm. And things like, just so our listeners understand, I mean, I've just used the buzzword there, PIS permissions. I mean, getting a permission to do that, what kind of shift does that, drive in your business and then ultimately for consumers at the end of the day how does that work because i think sometimes people perhaps don't understand how a a change in a piece of legislation can carry through into the value chain if you like yeah so i mean let's just let's just so we have our ais which is aggregation in effect permissions with the fca and pis payment permissions uh payment initiation actually to be clear Mm. with the fca and you do need those to do those two jobs but I guess what I would say is that we didn't get our payment permissions to try and take on the world of Visa and MasterCard. Okay. And, yeah. and so just before I go on, it's probably worth a little step back. So what do I see being the, the big areas that are being, you know, the Competition Markets Authority didn't do this for fun. No. For good reason. And let's just be clear about the, the disruption level. So the disruption is happening as a result of open banking, aggregation of data available to all companies now. That disrupts the credit bureaus. So the whole that the, the three credit bureaus, so you know, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion have had over a market is being disrupted. And then you take the banking sector, the whole that they've had over customers spending data because of it coming in and out of your account, whether yep. is being disrupted because that's no longer 
only the eyes of the banks and the, and the kind of credit cards. And then also Visa and MasterCard and other companies who traditionally have charged a commission to make payments. So they're the three areas that are being, you know, kind of targeted, if you like, by the Competitions and Markets Authority with AIS and PIS. And so we didn't get our PIS permissions to take on MasterCard and Visa. I mean, some, you know, companies are. I mean, they're genuinely saying, look, we can do bank-to-bank payments cost-effectively, efficiently and safely. The reason we got them is because we thought, you know, take the investment world where traditionally you couldn't actually sweep eight pounds into an ISA ad hoc because the cost of actually doing that was prohibitive. You you either had to set up a direct debit cost, you know, friction, so you never got there, so it wasn't worth trying to get the person to to do that, or um, you had to use your credit card, you know, or, or debit card to do that. And the actual cost is prohibitive. So as an investment or a fund manager, I know that eight pounds less, you know, X is going to make it into your investment. And actually, I, I, I can't do that as, a, as an investment manager. That's, it's not right because mm. actually, you know, you, 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 we can't do it. So I, I think what people don't realise is we've now opened up a whole world and we did it to be able to action nudges. So our whole reason for getting payments was to be able to action nudges because we we were in the FCA sandbox where we were actually just experimenting around if you presented a different or a better credit card that was more suitable for you in the way that you spend your money, would you change? And we managed to get people that had high interest rate credit cards that often went into, you know, didn't pay them off at the end of the month. So actually it got hit with a 33.9% you know, charge. But the reason they were loving the cards is because of the points they got. And we were able to point out that the points you're getting of the 33% So when you look at the difference, do you think you should perhaps just give up on the points and go and get a credit card that doesn't have points but's got a 12.9% you know yeah. rate? And actually we were able to cut through all of that noise and get people to go, oh yeah, definitely. But we saw seven percent change and that went to 68% when we could actually thumbprint it and move them across. So when we could actually right. acknowledge there there. Yeah, yeah. the difference in the take-up. And so that's why we got our payments. So that we, you know, so if, if a company, an enterprise, wants to help someone do something there and then, we can do that. We can initiate that bank transfer there and then like that. Very interesting. Uh, you are what could be described, I guess, as a financial marketer's nightmare in terms of uh, relying on inertia, which is what effectively the sector's done for the last 50 years, isn't it? So interesting. Very good. I mean, that, that's brilliant. That's really brought it to life. Thank you. And I mean, just sort of thinking much longer term then, I mean, where do you think this could all go? I mean, what, what do you think is the sort of perfect open finance or open banking innovation? What does it look like from a customer's perspective if they're really prepared to embrace everything you've been talking about? Where, where, where do you think it could get to? So for me, it's about the automation. You know, I mean, I I just go back to, I want to get to the fields of financial wellness. I want to make every penny I earn or generate work as hard as it can, go as far as it can for me. But I would like it to do that automatically. I I don't want to have to spend time each month worrying about, you know, is it in the best place? I, I genuinely want my money to work hard for me. I, I probably will have parameters that I set up. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, maybe getting the highest return on my investments isn't critical for me because I actually would quite like to make an impact with my money as well at the same time because I feel that that is actually going to get me to the fields of financial wellness. Like there'll be fields left when I, when I do get there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, genuinely, I think the balance is about what I want. So the parameters I think I set up, but, but then I want 24 by 7 monitoring and I want alerts to be made for me that when I want them. So, Neil, you might want an alert when you're off piece by a tiny part because you're a bit stressy. I am not nearly so stressy, so please only alert me when things are going really wrong. And then I'm going to be dragged back in and have a look at it, right? Mm. But other than that, I'm, I'm really not bothered. So coming back to our risk and return conversation way back, I think that's all got to shift to about, you know, how do I want to interact with my, my money and how do enterprises and businesses set themselves up to work with the consumer in the way that's brilliant for them. And, and it's hyper-personalization and automation. It's not about, 
you know, dare I say, you know, the beautiful UX. I mean, unfortunately, I think we've got to think a bit beyond that. Okay. And just there's a thought in my mind when you're talking, that sounds, yeah, fantastic. And yeah, I'm a bit stressy, so that would actually work quite well for me. But I mean, how does this fit with financial education per se? Because I, I, one of the things that I've, I've done a lot of work on over the years, it's sort of touched on the work we do in customer experience all the time, particularly in financial services, is that, that all sounds brilliant. But to get someone to trust that, there's a basic level of understanding, I think, sometimes missing just around just general finance. You're just understanding the impact of compound interest, for example. I mean, how do you see open banking and open finance sitting alongside financial education do you think it plays a part in it or is, is does it need it in order for it to become a reality because i i suppose my only concern about a future you've just painted there is 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 trust and people given behaviors in the past and problems they've been in the past whether people will ever trust that or whether it will only ever be a, a segment of people that really really understand it that take it on so i have quite a maybe a controversial view on this which is that i think we've got to let the education mission go a bit. So don't get me wrong, there is a group out there that are keen to understand, and we should enable that. So, you know, if you want to understand how money works and the intricacies of it, by all means, you know, don't stop that or hinder that. But I use my car analogy here. So because there are people out there who love to know how a car works and, and, you know, the carburetor and, you know, all, all sorts of things, right? I am not one of them. So if you had made it that I had to get educated about how the engine works, and if I had to do that in order to get a license to drive my car, I would be on the bus. So I I, I don't want to set that bar, you know, too high so that we end up having more vulnerable customers in a way because we just exclude them. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing, I can drive my car perfectly well. I don't need to understand how that engine works. But what I would say is I would like to think that as financial services, as makers of the cars, we owe it to the consumer to do a good job, right? I mean, mm. we don't put people in cars that are lethal, do we? Do you know what I mean? We, mm. When I go buy a car, right, I don't think I'm taking my life in my own hands because the brakes might actually fail, not, not actually go on when I need to stop. Because I think there is, there is a certain level of regulation in their industry, you know, and, and almost... That's what I think we do need, legislation and regulation to protect the consumer. But I would like to think, and I say this to all of the financial services providers, you'll only get in trouble if you do the wrong thing by the consumer. So if you rip them off or, you know, my effect, you know, the brakes are a bit flaky, they they work sometimes, they don't work other times and people die, then that is wrong. And, you Mm. know, I have no sympathy for a company that sets me off in a car that does that. So I do think we're still in the way, but I would argue surely now with transparency of fees and the world that's coming our way, we can just build good cars that people get in and do a fantastic job. And you've seen from the car industry, there's still a lot of choice. It's not one car fits all. You know, what one person likes to drive, another one won't. And that's going back to my, my analogy again about investment. I may choose to have a little bit less return and, you know, there's someone else out there. They just want the highest return possible. Mm. And, you know, is there anything wrong with that? No. No, no. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I suppose to stretch the analogy a bit further and to your point about automation, you know, as long as you've got a dashboard that tells you when something's going wrong and therefore you can go and take it to an expert who can go and do something about it, then I, I get that. Okay, interesting. Thank you for that. I mean, that's that's amazing. Thank you very much indeed for, for explaining. Know, I, don't, I don't want to be happy. You brought up compound interest, but there was a study done years ago in America and they actually spent a year educating a group about compound interest on the mortgage. So APR versus what you actually pay. They did that for a year. They had a control group that did nothing with. And then they gave them, all of them, lots of different mortgage products to, to take. You know, that, Process, that they, yeah. And all that happened on that, by the way, is the group that had been educated for a year on compound interest actually made as many poorly informed decisions as what the other group made. They were just more confident about it. So, so there's no yep. change in the actual, what do you call Outcome. it? Um, yeah. it's just, I, I'm now confident I've got the right yeah. one. I've, I've really bolstered up, but I don't know. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <but laughs> no, 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 it's good. I know there's a lot of people out there that really want to help educate people. I think there is a level, but going back to the car, it's just at some point you've got to accept, uh, I may not want to know about it. No, and, it, and it's like other industry sectors that we work in as well, where 
consumer trust has been eroded and it's quite deep rooted and it's it's pulling people out of that and is the extent to which understanding generates trust or whether as you say if the product itself performs in a way that you expect it to then over time that trust will return and people will feel more comfortable that they can say yeah i'm buying this and it's been checked out and they've got all these reviews and i can you know and it, it seems to do the job so maybe it is a, a case of reliability takes away contempt and builds trust i don't know let's see let's see i'm sure you'll be at the forefront of it or behind it anyway in terms of uh, what's going on that's really interesting and and in terms of the whole theme of you know the rise of the customer i think there couldn't really be a better example of a force that's going on driven by regulation with technology behind it that really epitomizes it so so thank you for explaining that before we finish i just there's a couple of questions i ask all of my guests just to get into real customer speak for a moment i mean First of all, what do you think being truly customer-centric means? Giving the consumer what they need. It's not always what they want. I know that sounds very odd, but if you think back to um, anything where we're delighted now, I don't think it was possible for us to have come up with that. You know, so I, I certainly wouldn't. In fact, in fact, you know, I, I probably, you know, you couldn't see easily to start with the value of apps on a smartphone. Do you, do you know what I mean when all that was mm. new? I mean, I loved my BlackBerry and the keyboard. <laughs> you know, it, it took yeah. quite a while for me to give up on that. You know, so you'll always get early adopters in anything, and then you'll get the followers, and then you get the luddites. You know, it's just how it is. Mm. But I, but I think really what what being consumer centric is is genuinely having a, an awareness of what's going on more generally in the world, so not in a silo. And accepting that is the direction of travel and going with that, whether you believe that or not, you know, in your heart, you think, oh, I'd love it. I'd love everyone to be educated about money. I mean, actually, to be honest, I would. I mean, genuinely, I have to accept that isn't going, that's not possible. And so I've got to think outside the box and think, how do I get people to the same place? Mm. But not, not the, maybe not the way I'd, you know, ideally yep. work. So that's what consumer centric is. You know, that's what customer centric is. And then the other thing I would say that the world has not been customer-centric particularly. So I, I say that because I think we, we as a world create products and then flog them, yeah. not even financial services, the whole world. Yeah. And I think there's a big shift coming, which is actually we've got to start working with a customer as being the central piece. And how do I service that customer? I, I think that's such a shift, even for the retail world, shopping, clothes, I mean, you know, if you take that to another level, actually, really, to be honest, can I just scan my body in? And can the world out there tell me after I've told you what, what you know, after you, you know what clothes I kind of like, because you can see, you know, what I buy and obviously what I like and what I don't. But can you just then tell me what, you know, what's going to fit well, do well? You know, why don't you just tell me? Why do I even have to go shopping, for God's sake? You know, why do I have to actually go and do all that off? So I think where we're getting is we're heading for a way more service-oriented economy. And I'm not sure mentally a lot of us, even in you know, other sectors to financial services, I'm not sure we've made that shift. And customer centricity for me is that massive shift to service-oriented mm. rather than product flogging. Yeah, no, great answer. Thank you. And can you think of a, a brilliant experience you've had that defines fantastic customer experience recently i mean i know it's quite difficult this question at the moment because people aren't doing an awful lot so <laughs> and often when i ask this question people recite travel stories or, or things like that but um can, can you think of a great example that epitomizes it well i personally you know amazon prime i mean hmm. i'm not trying to be difficult but you know who would have thought in some business anywhere that we're going to come up 50 quid a year you get everything you want the next day and, you know, how does that make any commercial sense in their business? You know, I mean, because I could order a pen on Prime every day of the year. Mm. A pen costs, I don't know, what, 99p? I, I, you know, it's, in no business would you ever get that business case through from what I can see, right, when I look no. at it. Other, no. It just doesn't stack up, right? It's been transformative and lifted a level of kind of what I call automation, personalization, you know, that, that actually I, I don't think any other business would have managed. No, no. With some great throwaways lobbed in as well. I mean, um, I, I discovered the other, I had no idea I've got a Kindle and um, I, I didn't realize that you could borrow books out of it. So I don't seem to ever buy a book. I don't, I don't tend to read fast enough unless I'm on holiday to run out of free lending libraries. As long as you check the other one back in and don't own it on your Kindle, you just keep borrowing the other one. So... 
I don't buy books anymore either. Which uh... Uh, and I think we've got to really take heed on that mode because that you look at that and what you just described, what I described, and in theory, Amazon should be going broke, right? Mm. Mm. And they're not. So that's no. the conundrum. I think a lot of us as businesses have got to start to get our heads around. Mm. Different shift, yeah. And the opposite question: terrible experience you've had recently. Maybe not name the organisation, but um... oh no, I'm going to make, I'm going to name it. Oh, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to take it's such a funny story. So it's the DVLA. Okay. So the okay. DVLA, so this was last year. So uh, as people that will know me a little better, uh, I am lastminute.com. I'm always doing nine things at once and all the rest, much to my husband's absolute horror. So we are driving up to Scotland and he happens to say to me, if you paid the tax on the car, I think to myself, oh, right. I don't know actually. And because uh, my car rider was driving, he was driving it, but you know, and so um, I go online, have a look, and no, I haven't paid the tax on the car. So when I get to the hotel, I go online, and, you know, and I, I pay it, except I fly through the site, and I get to the end, and it's got a big tick, and it says brilliant, you know, and I've got my, I've got my card, you know, I've still got my card in my hand, I thought, wow, I haven't actually paid anything, and there's not taken any money. And I said to Graham, I said, do we don't have a you know, we haven't got an account set up with the DVLA, have we? I said, because I just paid the car tax. I said, except I haven't paid it. And he comes over and he has a look and he reads what's on the screen. He said, yeah, you've taken the car off the road. You sawned it or something. And, and I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah. He said, read it. You know, you know big tick and you read underneath. And sure enough, yeah, I've just taken the vehicle off the road. So anyway, so I think, oh, okay. So I just go and do it again. Right? put it back on the road and pay for it. Except you can't do that. You have to wait two weeks before you can put your vehicle back on the road. Oh, really? God, right, okay. so, so I ring them up because I think, well, you know, I, I am driving this car around Scotland, right? And we're driving back in three days. So anyway, so I ring them up and sure enough, you can't do it. And not even when you ring them. So then I, I got cross, right? Because I'm like, but this is ridiculous. I, I've, I've taken the car off the road. We must be able to put it back on the road. And I only took it off the road two seconds ago. And I've got my card and I want to pay for a tax. Surely you can do that. And this poor person's telling me, no, you can't. Uh, you'd have to go into a post office with all the paperwork. I'm, like, I, I'm 600 miles from home. Like, you know, mm. the blood pressure is rising. And then it gets better. He, um, he says to me, so this is a word of caution to all the UX world out that we've been talking about. He says to me, you know, um, we've improved the site to make it really easy to take your vehicle off the road. And I'm like, do you know what? You have definitely done that. And I said, that, that isn't, you know, you have nailed that. Unintended consequences, yeah. Exactly. Anyway, we drove that vehicle. I mean, you know, unfortunately, off the road for the next three days, you know, drove it all the way back from Scotland, hoping, to, hoping that, you know, because, you know, sod's law, that's when you're going to have an accident, isn't mm. it? Anyway, we made it home, but there you go. There's my... And I can still, <laughs> I can see you still feel it now. Absolutely. And, and it's funny, when people tell stories like that, how important customer experience is as a profession in terms of not allowing those feelings to be permeating through the general population about your brand. So uh, very good story. Thank you. And final question, I promise, just in terms of reflecting on your experience as a leader and as somebody who has been involved in um, various different businesses, uh, you know, to, to drive them forward. Can you share any lesson that you've learned, which you could never have learned at business school? So something that no one could have told you before you started this journey? Well, I don't know if it's something that business school wouldn't, you know, necessarily tell you, but it's something that I just think we perhaps don't appreciate in the way that you, you could or should, and that, that is that people matter. Mm. I just think in business school, you get a bit commercial about everything, you know, accounting, you know, your pricing models. If you think about all the stuff you do in terms of business, and all I would say is that, you know, the thing that I've learned the most is that actually the biggest differentiator in everything is people, the people that work for you and the people that are your customers or your clients. It's, it's all about people. And I don't think we spend enough time and effort on enabling people to interact with people where potentially they are not as good. So if, you, if you're not good at, you know, working with people, then they're things that are really going to hold you back as a leader. And I don't think you can underestimate empathy, you know. So going back to, you know, just just because I have never been in a situation that someone's been in, you shouldn't, you shouldn't underestimate the impact that that might be having on them and your business or them as a client. So I always mm -hmm. try and say to people, you know, when you have difficult calls with a client or with, you know, even internally, 
And you think, oh, that didn't go that well. The first thought is that, that you know, they're being difficult or awkward or, or maybe I got that wrong and I wound them up. But actually, what, what we don't jump to is, is it that their grandmother just died? Mm-hmm. And they're soldiering on a bit. And actually, yes, you, you know, it won't take much to get on the wrong side of them on that particular game. I just don't think we're good enough at thinking that we, everyone is a human being and we will never be solid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going back to the behavioural economics, we're yeah, logical, yeah. practical, and actually emotionally, we're not solid. We're, we're, you know, we're quite good most of the time, but I think you can't underestimate you know, that, that part, that, that's what I think business school isn't very good at. No. Okay. Great to hear that from somebody whose life is built around a technology proposition at the moment. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, thank you for sharing that as well. Sam, we've, re- we've reached the end of time. Thank you for generously giving up an hour of your time to, to talk about the business and, and to really share what I think is a fantastic example of what the rise of the customer means in practice in a, in a massively important sector for this country, well, for the, for the global economy. So, uh, so thank you for that. Really appreciate it. And, um, well, I hope to chat to you again soon. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great fun. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.